if you're familiar with the New Testament, you'll know that in those early days of the Christian church, there were difficulties and misunderstandings between Jewish churches and Jewish Christians and Gentile churches and Gentile Christians. Those who've come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, but either came from a Jewish background with a Jewish heritage and all the traditions that went with it, or those that came from one of the Gentile nations, uh, often with all kinds of pagan worship in their background. So um, in both cases, all kinds of things that had to be done away with from their former understanding, their former belief system, uh, their former practices and traditions, um, very different though they may be, and all coming uh, to the same Saviour, the same faith, the same Lord, the same God, the same church. Uh, some of you will know, though, that those who were of a Jewish background, for, for many of them, and understandably so, I suppose, really, they struggled to throw off some of these things uh, that had been so dear to them from the Old Testament scriptures. And, and many of them in some of the churches were were under pressure to still conform to certain aspects of Judaism which the Apostle Paul and others would make clear no, need have no place now amongst the Lord's people. Some of you will know, for example, that there were many who considered that all the men should still be circumcised, for example, and there were other things as well. And these tensions existed for quite a while in the early church and, and the Apostle Paul, some of you will know, at one point um, had to have a, a public uh, putting right of Peter over an issue that was all tied up with those kinds of things. Um, so there's all those kinds of difficulties and tensions within the, the New Testament church. Now, over the last few years, at the point that all of this is happening in terms of Paul writing to the Corinthian church... The predominantly Jewish Christians back in Jerusalem and Judea have been in terrible uh, problems. Uh, they've faced a great deal of persecution, of course, uh, but also there's been a very severe famine in that part of the world during this time. And the Lord's people back in Jerusalem and Judea are, are in great need. And Paul has been encouraging the churches in other parts of Europe to send help and aid to their needy brothers and sisters back in Jerusalem. And right at the end of his first letter to the Corinthians, as it's recorded in the Bible, I say that, of course, because we know from these letters that other letters existed. It's only these two that have been recorded in the Scriptures for us. But in chapter 16... He says there, now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, that's modern day Turkey, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there will be no collections when I come. You'll have something ready for me. And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. The Lord's people there are in great need. And you churches, 
you need to be helping them. So most of these other churches in modern-day Syria, Turkey, Greece, most of them, of course, established through Paul's earlier missionary endeavours, many of them made up of predominantly Gentile believers, Paul sees this as an opportunity, not only for those churches to send aid and relief back to Jerusalem, but to try and establish a sense, a real sense of unity and fellowship across this wider Christian community. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And you might all be members of individual local churches, but you all are part of the wider church of Christ. Now, perhaps, Perhaps because of all of these troubles that we've been thinking about in the Corinthian church, perhaps because they've been going on and they've kind of become sidetracked by these other things, the Corinthian church has not yet provided the help and assistance which they had actually promised to do. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 at verses uh, 9 and 10, Paul mentions that, that they've actually already given this promise to assist financially. But so far, the money hasn't come through. Now, we saw last time in chapter 7, both Paul and Titus are rejoicing now at how the situation in Corinth is improving. They're they're responding to that earlier letter that Paul had sent them. And so, Paul now feels this is a really good time to remind them that they need to hold good to that commitment that they gave a year ago. And that's what this whole chapter is about, as he exhorts them to fulfill their commitment and to relieve the need of their brothers and sisters in Christ back in Jerusalem. And there are some really helpful things for us in these verses. Now, we don't regularly make an issue of giving money to the church. We don't even pass around an offertory plate, as you've noticed, although there is a box at the back that you can put gifts in. But it is an important issue, and it is a biblical issue, as we'll be reminded in these two chapters as we consider them today and next week. And it's an opportune time, as the scriptures themselves bring this subject as our agenda for two Sundays. I would exhort you, if you haven't done so for a while, maybe now is a good time to consider how you support this church and the Lord's people. It's not just about money, of course, although this is primarily about giving financial aid so that people can be relieved. Of course, there's many other ways in which you can help people and support people and give to people. There are other ways you can give time and resources and energy. Maybe this is a good opportunity for you to consider uh, how you're doing and what the scriptures would exhort of you as a Christian. Well, as I was going through this, um, looking at this chapter, I was deciding how how to break it down and how to look at it. And what I ended up doing was just, and I kept coming back to this, just drawing out various points and principles of application and just writing them down as a list as I went through the chapter. So that's what I've done. And I've ended up with eight points. That's just how it was. Um, there's nothing magic about the number eight but that's how it is that's how many I ended up with and that's what we're going with this morning so eight points and principles regarding giving and more to come next week because God in his wisdom 
devotes a sizable chunk of this letter from Paul to this subject, so we need to give it the time. Number one, be encouraged by what others are doing and encourage others by what you are doing. That's the opening verse. Be encouraged by what others are doing and encourage others by what you are doing. Paul makes reference to the churches in Macedonia. That's northern Greece. Primarily, probably, the churches at Thessalonica and Philippi. They're the two main churches that we all have heard of. The grace of God bestowed on those churches. I'm making it known to you. Let me tell you what they've done. Now, this is not to suggest that we should each have an intimate knowledge of each other's business. Don't forget the instructions of Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. When you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet to draw attention to yourself. That's what the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they can have glory for men. No. When you do a charitable deed, said Jesus, it should be done in such a way that even your own left hand doesn't know what your own right hand has done. Never mind anyone else. Because you're not in this to be seen by men. The Lord knows, and that's sufficient for anyone. For the most part, it is not good to draw the attention of others to what you are doing. For one thing, pride can all too easily set in. You're not doing this for personal reputation or standing. But as much as we are able to see the love and charity of others, that should be a challenge to our own conscience in terms of what we're doing. And perhaps as we seek to give and as we seek to serve others, our giving and our serving will be a challenge and an encouragement to other people. Let me give you an example. A few weeks ago, um, Gary Donaldson was telling us of a lady who has committed many thousands of pounds to the work in Sri Lanka, specifically for the construction of church buildings. Now, we don't know her name. We don't need to know her name. It's none of our business to know her name. And she'd probably be mortified if we did. <laughs> but we do know that a sister in Christ has committed to do that and is keeping to that commitment. Well, the Lord bless her, I'm sure he will. And knowing things like that should challenge and stimulate me. Wow, she's done that? Well... What am I doing? Should make me think that way. That's what Paul is doing here for the Corinthian church. Let me tell you what the Macedonians have done. And remember that if you remain faithful in what you give to the Lord, if you remain faithful in what you give to the Lord, and that's not just about money, then you too can be a good example and an encouragement who moves other people to act. That's the first point from verse 1. And what is it that Paul says about the Macedonian church in verses 2 to 4? Well, be ready to give even when it's hurting. Be ready to give even when it's hurting. In great trial of affliction. 
yet they have abundance of joy. Deep poverty, yet abounding in riches of liberality. According to their ability, and actually even beyond their ability, they have given. Now, we know something of at least two of these churches in Macedonia, don't we? I've mentioned the names of them already. One of them is the church of Philippi, and the other has two letters written to them, First and Second Thessalonians. Well, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 15, Paul says this, Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. So the Philippian church have a track record in this. Faithful, committed, diligent, caring about Paul and the spread of the gospel and ready to give. And the Thessalonian church, well, we know something about them, don't we? In the opening letter that Paul writes to the Thessalonians, uh, giving thanks to God always for you, verse 2, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, patience of hope. Our gospel didn't come to you in word only, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. You became followers of us. You received the word in much affliction. Great opposition and persecution was coming to these new Christians, but still they were coming. Still they were giving themselves to the Lord despite the opposition. You've become examples to all in Macedonia. From you, the word of the Lord has sounded forth, and so and so on. But they weren't only doing those things that Paul mentions there. They were also giving sacrificially to other churches. And here they are mentioned in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We see that there were two ways, at least, in which these Christians were hurting, but still giving. Firstly, their own circumstances were not good. They were going through many afflictions of their own. Now, perhaps that's a a reference to persecution. It almost certainly is. But they didn't allow their own difficulties to let them lose sight of the needs of others. There's a lesson. That can so easily happen when we go through times of hardship. We turn in on ourselves. We see only ourselves. We think only of ourselves. Not these believers. Despite their own trials, they're still thinking about the Lord's people back in Jerusalem. And they're ready to try and help them. Another way that they were hurting is that they had little to give. They were probably thinking, oh, if only we could, if only we could give more. Look, we have so little. They were deep in poverty. Yet, nevertheless, look at what Paul can save them. They still gave liberally and beyond their ability to give. This was costly giving, and still they gave. I wonder how many of us have ever impoverished ourselves in order to give to others. I have to hold up my hand and say with an honest reflection of my life, I never have. You ever impoverished yourself in order that you can give to others? The Macedonian churches did. Wow. 
whenever we're cal calculating how much we might be able to afford, do we always, always, without fail, make sure we've covered all of our own needs first and then we'll work out how much we're prepared to give away? Well, I didn't mention that word grace in verse 1, but I will now. Because it's the grace of God that's making the difference in the lives of these people in this Macedonian church. Here are churches in affliction and their concern and desire is to help others. Here are churches in affliction and poverty and that yet their joy is abounding. Here are churches that probably need help themselves, yet they're overflowing with generosity to help others. Here are churches who haven't needed to be prompted by Paul like the Corinthian church needs it. In fact, with them, it's been the other way around. They've been pestering him. We, we've got something to give. When are you going to come and take it? It's ready here. We're ready to give. Come and take the gift because they're desperate to do the right thing amongst the fellowship of God's people. What an example these people are. And how can you be like that? The grace of God is at work in these people. You see, the grace of God reproduces the love and the nature and the character of God in his children. And that's what we're seeing in these Christians. And that gives the third point. Consecrated hearts produce consecrated pockets. If your heart is right with the Lord, your hand will go in your pocket. No trouble at all. That's verses 5 and 6. First... They gave themselves to the Lord. They gave themselves. And they've given themselves to Paul by the will of God. How much of yourself have you truly given to the Lord? See, that, that will be seen in how deep down into your pockets your hand is ready to go. And as we'll see, the actual amount isn't the issue. How much you've got in your pocket isn't the issue. You might only have pence, you might have pounds. The issue is how deep into your pocket are you prepared to put your hand? That's the issue. These believers have wholeheartedly given themselves to the Lord and to the Lord's work. The gospel needs to go out. The Lord's people are in great need. Yes, of course we'll help. Of course we'll give. And there's no crisis of conscience in their minds as to how much they should give because of that. I wonder, are we too often thinking, well, if I really give that much, will that make too much of an impact on my own situation? Yeah. I'm really not sure I'm prepared to go that far. But that doesn't seem to be an issue for these believers. If I give this much, well, this thing over here gets threatened. And if I increased it to this much, well, that thing over there gets threatened as well. Does the Lord seriously expect me to go without that and that? 
in order that I can give this? Well, maybe he does. Maybe he does. Do we ever even pause to think this way as Christian people? That's the challenge of this, this example that is put before us in the scriptures here. How many other things are staking their claim on your hard-earned cash as your hand goes in your pocket? That's the issue. And how many of those other things always, always win the day? The difference in these churches is that, certainly compared to the Corinthian church, they've wholeheartedly given their whole self to the Lord for him to do as he will. And so these decisions about how much they're ready to give, they're really no big deal at all. So Paul longs that with the visit of Titus, the Corinthian church might be brought into the same place. Now the fourth point that Paul makes is that generous giving is a necessary mark of grace. Generous giving is a necessary mark of grace. And that's in verses 7 to 9. And he, he observes how much the Lord is already doing in them. Despite the fact that the Corinthian church have failed in this area, Paul gives us another example of his manner in dealing with them. He's not beating them constantly with a big stick. He brings words of encouragement in verse 7. He acknowledges the things that are giving full evidence of God's working in them and amongst them. And his argument is, look, look at all that the Lord is doing in you. Now, why would you not address this issue as well when he's done all of that? Why would you hold back on this one thing when the Lord has done all of these things in you and amongst you? He's trying to show them that for a church that has all the qualities that they have in verse 7, it should be the most natural thing in the world for a church like that to want to come to the aid of the Lord's people, just like the Macedonians have done. And interestingly, at verse 8, Paul makes it clear that he's not commanding them to give a specified amount or anything like that. He, he's wanting them to give out of, as a response of their heart because of the grace of God at work in them, just like the example he's presented to them. I'm looking at the Macedonian churches, says Paul, and what they have given in their situation and why they've been ready to give it. And now I'm looking at you and what I'm hoping for is to be able to see something similar. And then in verse 9, he really hammers it home. After all, aren't all these principles, says Paul, that I'm talking about precisely what we see in Jesus? Aren't all of these things precisely what we see in our Saviour, who we're all seeking to follow? So many times we find the Apostle Paul nailing down his teaching by pointing us to Christ and saying, just like him, or because of him. And that's what he does here in verse 9. Just like Christ, because of Christ. What love God has shown to us in Christ. What grace has been lavished upon us 
in the Lord Jesus Christ. How deep into his pockets, as it were, he was ready to go for you. He gave up all his riches for you. Now by this, Paul, of course, is not talking about financial wealth when he talks about the riches that Christ gave up for us, of which we sang earlier on. He's, he's talking about the exalted place that Christ enjoyed before his incarnation. There he is, the eternal Son of God, dwelling in perfect joy and peace and harmony in heaven, receiving all the glory and honour and praise that is due his name from heaven's angels. Retain, return, reigning, I should say, eternal and supreme over all things. And then thou didst leave thy throne and thy kingly crown when thou camest to earth for me, as many will be singing this Christmas time. Along with these words, Thou who wast rich, beyond all splendour, all for love's sake, became as poor. Thrones for a manger did surrender. Sapphire paved courts for stable floor. Thou who art God, beyond all praising, all for love's sake, became as man. Stooping so low but sinners raising heavenward by thine eternal plan. You see, grace and generous giving go hand in hand. God is full of grace to save sinners, but look at what he had to give in order to achieve it. Grace and generosity in giving go hand in hand. Look at your saviour. Grace in God granting to us blessings that we could never deserve or, or earn. God's grace is abundantly giving and those who's, who've known his grace will live lives which are likewise characterized by abundant giving just as he has given fifthly don't make a commitment you're not going to keep and this is verses 10 and 11 where he reminds them you made this commitment a year ago that you were going to give this gift to the churches and you haven't done it now as a church we understand we can't give to everything we can't provide relief for everyone. But if we make a commitment, we must stick to it. And that holds true for you individually as well. And so we need to exercise judgment and discernment, don't we, in the very first place, in considering who we will help and how we can help and why. Because once we've made that commitment, we should stick to it. So we need to consider the nature of the need we need to consider whether we actually have the resources to meet it in the first place. It might be a need for which money is not the answer. Some group of Christians somewhere in the world might need a medical team. And if we were a church with no medical people, well, we've no one to send them. 
And of course, circumstances change. The original need may become resolved before we've had an opportunity to respond. The original need may change so that now you're actually not in the position to help like you were originally because the need has changed. Your own circumstances may change in a way that you could never have foreseen or expected and it leaves you unable to help in the way that you'd originally planned to or hoped to. So with God's grace, with careful, prayerful thought, you should consider, you should, we as a church need to, who and how we may help. And as far as best seems to us with the grace and wisdom that God gives us, don't make a commitment that you're not going to keep. And make every commitment something that is certain. But don't allow such thinking to make you say, well, who can know? It's all so complicated and you end up doing nothing. <laughs> you do need to make these decisions, but once you've made that commitment, you should keep it. Number six, you're not expected to give what you do not have. That might come as a relief for some people, but you're not expected to give what you do not have. That's verse 12. If, if there is first a willing mind, it is accepted according to what one has and not, in, not according to what he does not have. So the first requirement is a willing mind. The first requirement is a willing mind. If there is a willing mind, not a grudging mind, not a reluctant mind, not a legalistic mind, a willing mind. First of all, God wants you to be eager to give, excited to give, like the Macedonians were. He wants you to see it as a wonderful joy and glorious privilege to be able to provide assistance to God's people. And Paul provides a, a note of sanity on a topic where there's been much confusion and sometimes wrong thinking. Give according to what you have. You can't give what you do not possess. In verse 3, he says he was never expecting the Macedonians to give more than they were able. So his delight was even greater when they went beyond that. Now, clearly, it was sacrificial. But they didn't give something that they did not have. They had it. It hurt, it cost to give it, but they didn't actually give something that they didn't have. We read in 1 Corinthians 16, he advises there, put something aside every week. Most people then probably were paid weekly. It's probably monthly for most people nowadays. But as you have it, when you get it, put something aside. Put aside from what you have and do it faithfully and willingly and gladly. Now, some, not Paul, talk about tithing, giving a tenth, as is mentioned in the Old Testament. Well, that can be a helpful guide, but it's never more than a guide. Paul never mentions it at all uh, here. Actually, if you read through the Old Testament, you'll discover there there's more than one thing you were meant to give a tithe to. And there were to be gifts and offerings on top of that. 
read through that, you come with an absolute minimum of 23%, not 10 and, and many people say, actually, if you look at it all, it's probably more than 30% of what you get through the year that needs to be given, if you're going to talk about tithing. Give as you can out of what you have. Now, let's be, let's be clear. For some people, even to get to 10% is out of the question. A low-income family in the UK living as frugally as they possibly can, may still find that after they've paid all of their essential bills, they don't even have 10% left. And really, there's nothing they can cut back on. They, they can't pay less to the council for their council tax. They're living as frugally as they can. They just don't have that much left over. They just don't have that much income. For others... 10% is a drop in the ocean. They could afford to give 50, 60, and it still wouldn't hurt. It's all about the heart. It's all about the heart and the, having a willing mind. Well, Paul has more to say on this topic in the next chapter. So we'll leave that issue there for now. Um, Maybe there are some who at times feel ashamed about the little that they're able to give when actually you've no need for such shame. Because you really are giving what you can out of what you have. Because you do have a generous heart and a willing mind. But it is only a little. Well, God does not require you to give what you do not have a very obvious illustration concerning an elderly lady outside the temple is itching to be told, but I'll leave that because maybe next, next week's speaker might be wanting to pick up on that one, perhaps. Number seven. This is not a license to exploit one another. Verses 13 and 15 are very interesting, aren't they? I don't mean that others should be eased and you have burdens, but equality just to bring some sense of unity across the church. Paul doesn't expect that a group of Christians over here will put themselves in virtual poverty and in doing so make this group of Christians over here very rich so that they think, hey, this is great, and just sit back and do nothing. That's not what Paul has in mind. Of course, it can all get very complicated in the modern world because there are differences in standards of living from place to place and there's all kinds of differences in currency values and on all those kinds of things. But Paul makes it clear here, we need to have some diligence and thought in what we're doing in our giving and seeking to bring some sort of equity and balance across the churches is what Paul has in view. But there are some interesting realities to consider as well in all of this. I'll give you an example. Uh, Pastor Jaycanth in Sri Lanka takes great care, great care there that the churches don't get the impression that these rich churches in the West will just supply everything and they don't have to do anything. Because that would be wrong. Of course, we do have a much general a much better general standard of living than they do. 
we're not as cash rich as they perhaps imagine we are. Perhaps in some parts of the world, they think churches like ours in the UK have a bottomless pit of money that we can just keep digging into, and we know that's not the case. And think about this as well. If we felt that all the believers in Sri Lanka, or wherever, should have exactly the same standard of living that we do in the UK what you could end up with is a form of prosperity gospel that actually works. Just become a Christian and all this money just falls into your lap. Well, that's not the true gospel either, is it? And that's not the kind of Christianity we want. So there's more to this than we realise. You have to think these things through. what it certainly does do in these verses is condemn those who in the name of Christ allow themselves to generate vast personal wealth off the backs of others who can least afford it it definitely condemns that so there's lots of wisdom needed in all of these things Paul references the manna in the wilderness in Exodus chapter 15 With the exception of the day before the Sabbath, the manna could only be used on the day it was gathered. Then it went off. So even if you picked up ten times what you needed, you always had an empty larder the next morning. Exactly the same as those who'd only gathered enough for one day. And the picture there is just trying to sensibly distribute resources amongst the Lord's people as best we can. We need a lot of wisdom in all of these things. But we need this willing heart and a a generous heart. And then the final point is behaving with propriety and accountability. And that's from verse 16 through to the end of the chapter. Paul introduces us there to Titus and two other men who are involved in the administration of this gift it becomes absolutely clear that Paul himself isn't even going to have this money in his hands at any point. Now, in his infinite wisdom and gracious gracious provision, God has given Paul these three other men with proven character, and they're going to work on Paul's behalf. They're going to do it in such a way that Paul doesn't need to touch any of the money himself. And he's been encouraging all of these churches to give, but it's not going to land in his hand. That's very good and wise. Now, we don't know who these other two men are who are traveling with Titus, but they're speaking of the, he speaks of the integrity that Titus has, and the brother referred to in verse 18 is a well-known figure amongst all the churches. Not only that, it was those churches, not Paul, who chose these men for the task. And that helps to remove any possible future accusations or allegations against Paul regarding where this money came from, where it went, and what it was used for. Now, just the other week, uh, you kept hearing the name Aaron Banks on the news. Uh, Now, he's this guy who um, bankrolled the Brexit campaign with millions of pounds, and all kinds of allegations and accusations are being made against him as to where that money actually came from. Because people think, some people are wanting to suggest it's come from Russia. And so 
he's been hauled before a parliamentary committee and all kinds of other things because allegations and accusations are being made. Where's the money from? Who gave it? Whose is it really? What's behind all of this? Now, it's obviously a very sizable gift, verse 20. And given all that's been going on in Corinth already to try and discredit Paul, Paul's not taking any chances with this money. And these men and the churches who've sent them are charged with ensuring that the funds are used in an honourable way and with full accountability. We mustn't be naive or foolish and we mustn't put ammunition in the guns of those who will gladly take potshots at us. So it's a very practical portion of the word of God and spiritually encouraging and challenging. There's a wealth of spiritual and practical wisdom in these verses. There are good examples to be followed and there need to be good examples set. There are churches in need and there are churches who are able to help. There needs to be willing minds consecrated lives and meaningful generous giving and there's a saviour whose life and example is the epitome of all that we should seek to be well the Lord help us in this particular area in our lives as Christians and as a church